Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. As the country looks forward with hope to an easing of restrictions next week, I talked to Professor Sam McConkie about some of the ways we will have to accommodate COVID-19 in the weeks, months and years ahead. Sam is Head of the Department of International Health and Tropical Medicine at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and he's been a prominent communicator of the science behind the response to the outbreak. We talk about our testing and tracing capability and what he calls the inevitability of a second wave of infection. He explains how we might be able to decide when it's time to safely reopen schools and childcare facilities. And finally, he raises the strange prospect of a planet divided along COVID-19 lines. Professor Sam McConkie, the HSE has outlined how it intends to approach uh, testing and tracing over the coming months and uh, its Chief Executive Paul Reid has said a target will be introduced to carry out testing and tracing in 90% of cases within three days. What's your view on that? I'm delighted that we're moving towards measuring the speed of the process uh, at this point, whereas in the past people have been getting uh, 100,000 tests a week and various sort of capacity tests. And to me, it's not about the, the scale, it's more about the speed. So I'm delighted we're moving uh, to, to a, a speed-based metric. I, I think it also means that we'll then be measuring it and auditing it, and, and that allows us the, the ability to improve it and to track it. So I, I welcome this a lot. Obviously, if it was faster, if it was two days, you know, one day for testing and then another day for the concentration, that would be better. And I think they know that. It's just logistical issues of trying to get everything to work as fast as possible. There are about eight or ten separate steps that have to be completed. Uh, so And each one kind of has to follow on the previous one. So it may be more complicated than most people initially realise. Um, in the in the early days, we we appeared to struggle with the testing element, whereas more recently, tracing has become more important. It appears, and you think the focus should be on tracing, don't you? Well, we need both. One depends on the other. Very early on, in the middle of January, I believe, in the National Virus Reference Laboratory. Dr. Tilly Daskin had up and running a high quality test for COVID-19 and had that up and running on, on hundreds of cases before we even saw the first one. So we were way ahead of uh, the need for it in a, in a very good way. Then at one stage, the uh, Department of Health changed the criteria for testing to include almost everybody in the country with a cough or a cold or a sniffle. And then, of course, there were so many swabs taken that the testing capacity was overwhelmed. So it's clear that at one point, the, the, the sort of criteria were overly broadened at a time where the testing capacity nationally did, was not able to keep up with that. And that created a huge backlog of, of several thousand, perhaps tens of thousands of samples. And then that created delay and some were sent to Germany and that, that wasn't clearly a good situation. Now, of course, we're on top of COVID-19 and there are many fewer cases, only 100 or so odd positives a day. So, so now, and even because we're all in, in um, our houses, there's much less coughs and colds and sniffles and flu and RSV and other viruses. So there are less people around with a fever and cough and, and, and runny nose. So I think at this point, the relaxing the criteria to try and broaden the uh, case definition is, is appropriate. And it helps us to keep a very sensitive measure on is this virus coming back? Because the reason we're testing is really at a public health level to see uh, is this virus starting to spread again in a bad way in our community as we enter into this relaxation of restrictions phase. How worried are you about a second phase? Well, sorry, a second wave, are you thinking of, of COVID-19 coming back, is almost inevitable. What I really hope is that it's a second ripple. So I hope that after a little increase in the number of cases, 
we're able to identify where they are geographically, which subsets the population they're in, and be able to intervene rather than the whole country going into restrictions, having targeted, focused uh, self isolation for the first degree and perhaps even second degree contacts of, uh, of wider contacts of, of the people who, who've been diagnosed as positive. So I, I, I think it's inevitable this will come back. That's been the experience in South Korea, in Germany and several other countries. It's just a question of when and where. And are, is our detection capacity, our testing and contact tracing adequate to find it at a very early stage uh, before it really overwhelms us so that we can do targeted, focused uh, restrictions rather than national ones, which have been so damaging to all of us? We are opening a, a range of businesses and organisations from Monday and, and Northern Ireland has taken its own approach to easing lockdown. How realistic is it to think that we can get this under control uh, in the context of an all-Ireland island approach? Well, I'm much happier about that in the last week than, than say, a few months ago because the uh, Northern Ireland executive released a document about three days ago where Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster spoke together on its launch. And that explicitly acknowledges there the need for an all-island approach, north-south cooperation. And in fact, quite rightly, in my view, east-west, meaning that this island and the island beside us, Great Britain, could work together, a bit like how New Zealand and Australia are working together, to have complete control and a cocoon that includes both our islands. Now, clearly the British in England haven't adopted that policy yet, but I was very pleased that in Northern Ireland we have a five-point plan and their phase one is not so much different from our phase one. It's talking about outdoor activity where people are still socially distanced, like garden centres, like outdoor construction. So it, it's, it's, it's relatively similar. Subtle differences. We're saying you can meet up to four people from different households outside two metres apart. They've said four to six people, but that's just a tiny quantitative difference that I don't think will be an issue. So I'm, I'm very comfortable with the phase one relaxation here. I don't think it's putting us at high risk as long as people actually follow the phase one restrictions rather than sort of saying, oh, we're already in relaxation. Let's jump to phase four tomorrow. Uh, that would, and have the, the house party of all the neighbours in, in the garden or whatever, or in the living room. So it's important that we all stick to phase one and, and not jump at this point to phase five. How confident are you that Irish businesses and organisations have detailed plans for reopening? Um, I think that is a, a very important message to get out there, that every, every organisation and charity and uh, church and sports club and certainly businesses need to go through a huge change management plan uh, and implementation uh, before Monday and to look at what can they do reasonably. Uh, from Monday, businesses can maybe go in and get essential documents uh, on a, on a one-person one basis to, to start that plan to reopen at a later phase. Uh, but there's a lot of staff teaching, staff training, even getting staff buy-in to how the changes will happen. We can't uh, run a business unless our staff are happy and, and satisfied that they are protected. And similarly, customers have to be reassured and protected. Uh, so there's a lot of training and uh, retraining and, and, and contingency planning and business continuity planning that businesses should be doing from the tiniest little two-person shop to, to a large industry of, of 20,000 people. And I think the answer is it's variable. Some companies like Indeed and Google, as you probably remember back in January, were running a dry run of their day working from home before COVID had even arrived in this country. So they were ahead of the curve. They said, yes, this is coming. Let's have a plan. Let's implement a plan. Let's pilot the plan, even when we don't need to. And that was that was a very wise maneuver. So they'd, they'd tried out their e execution of working from home. And I think it went very well. So many of the IT companies, software companies and 
banks and financial institutions are functioning very well with everyone working from home. Like the question is, will they ever go back to renting very large commercial property in Dublin city centre again? Because it's obviously has great efficiencies for people working from home. And I think many of them have learned that they're much more productive. Uh, there, has, there, hasn't, there hasn't been a drop in productivity. The, the productivity has largely stayed the same. So, so I think there's going to be a new way, a new world. We're in, we're in a new era. We're in a, a post-COVID-19 era that's changed the world forever. And, and th- these changes, some of them, I think, will be so good and so sensible and so wise that we'll continue them even, even when the problem is finished. Sam, do you think there's enough evidence to open schools early? A very important one. Our children and the young people and infants are really suffering through this. Uh, can't get out, can't meet their friends, can't play with their friends. And that's what children like to do. And that's their not just their right, but it's how they learn to be human beings is going to school and interacting with their peers and friends and having fun. So I feel they've maybe had the hardest time, especially younger ones who aren't old enough to use computer games and social interactions on computers. So getting them back to normal play school and school and fresh is, is really important for their education and for the future of all of us. And so the data on that is that um, initially we were terrified that children might be spreading it a lot because they certainly do spread respiratory syncytial virus and metanumavirus and adenovirus and rhinovirus, many other viruses in the community are kind of spread widely in creches and daycare. So that's why as a precaution they were closed down quickly. It turns out now that the evidence comes out that they're probably not much uh, powerful spreaders. Uh, some of that data is from um, Iceland where they swabbed everybody and, and looked at the rates in children and it was actually lower than the rates in adults. And then cases from Singapore and Wuhan have analysed the number of instances where small children going to school and crash have reintroduced or introduced COVID-19 virus into their family. And it seems like that's an exceptionally unusual uh, uh, phenomenon from, from the data we have over the last two months. So HICWA, as you know, did a report on this and said it's not very common. It is fair to say that there's only about five or eight papers on this, so it's quite weak evidence at present. The best evidence will come from Denmark. The Danes have asked their kids to all go back to school in a socially distanced way. Now, how you keep four-year-olds two metres apart, I have no idea. I don't quite know how they've achieved that. Not an easy thing to do, but that's what they say they're trying to do. Uh, and it, they've been doing it now for three or four weeks. So if the Danish families with preschoolers and primary school children are all fine and they're not uh, incubating COVID-19 and getting sick with their grandparents dying, and, and if we, once we can see that signal uh, or negative signal, I hope a lack of signal uh, coming out in a week or two, then that gives us more confidence to copy what the Danes have done, which is socially distanced primary school, often just with eight or 10 children per classroom, often a ratio of teacher to pupil of eight to 10 per teacher, which may be challenging for us Irish schools where we've often 20 or sometimes even 30 per teacher. But maybe that's a better educational experience. Maybe that level of uh, ratio of teacher to pupil is actually better for our children. So maybe, again, better education will come out of this. So I, I, I think many of us are watching Denmark and Sweden and some other Scandinavian countries to see if it appears to be a factor there. So I agree that there's not enough evidence right now, uh, today, Thursday. But in a week or so, we, we may we may be able to be more confident about that. If we take a look at our our figures now, our, our performance overall is is mediocre by international standards, although we seem to have got so much right. Why, why do you think that is? I think when you the, the metric I use and it's widely used for uh, epidemics and pandemics is the total mortality. So looking at the total number of people in Ireland who died every week over the last two months compared to for the last five years and our total mortality hasn't been unusually high. So we, we've actually got this very right uh, compared to many countries, whether it's New York 
or London or Milan or Spain, uh, we've had a very light impact of this in terms of mortality and health. So while there have been deaths from COVID-19, deaths from other things appear to have been less. So, so our total numbers of people dying each week in Ireland has not risen beyond expected levels. So I think there's a very strong message. We've been largely successful in this. Uh, we're, we're normally about 85 deaths a day uh, from just the general sort of things that people die of. And are, uh, that, that hasn't gone up in a, what we call it, statistically significant, meaningful way above what you would expect. Uh, there's data on this from a European Union pandemic tracking site for every country in Europe. It's a website called Euromomo, E-U-R-O-M-O-M-O. And that shows uh, comparative data between countries looking at total mortality. My view is that the data on COVID-19 proven deaths is misleading because different countries have different testing regimes and different criteria for testing, not just between countries, but even as we discussed earlier, in one country over time, we change our testing criteria. So you can't compare the number of deaths from proven COVID-19 before to afterwards because the number of proportion of cases you prove will be higher when you test more widely. So I, I think we've come out of this exceptionally well. Uh, socially, there's been uh, widespread social buy-in to doing what we've been asked by Tony Hulohan and, and by Simon Harris and Leo Varadkar. I, I think our political leaders have communicated well. So far, we've done well in the last few months. The challenge, uh, Deirdre, is that getting out of this is much harder than getting into it and, and trying to get our businesses back up and running in a highly productive way, especially for employment, especially youth employment. If people aren't working, we're not happy, we're not creating anything, we're not contributing to becoming anything new. So so working, in my view, is a, is a really important part of who we are as human beings and, and we have to get get Ireland back to work in, in, in one way or another. Now, there are jobs in nursing homes. We have jobs for chefs and porters and cleaners and healthcare assistants and nurses and working home, nursing homes, and we're really short of those right now. So there are lots of jobs in Ireland. As I mentioned earlier, there are lots of change management opportunities where lots of businesses need, need to change. Similarly, the essential services like electricity, like telephones, like uh, healthcare, like mobile phones, GPS, actually need maybe 15 or 20% more staff at this point just to maintain the integrity of those essential services. Because as the nursing homes discovered, 20% of your staff can be out sick at any one time if this happens to hit your particular business. So those essential industries, which includes things like banking, like uh, bank payments, like bank gyros, MasterCard, Visa, we, we don't want the system that we all use to tap and go for our payments in the supermarket to break down. So it's really important that those services uh, keep, keep going and they need more people to fix them than they did six months ago because 20% of the staff could be out in three weeks' time out sick with COVID-19. I think, you know, the meat factories down the country in Tipperary had this problem. Lots of their staff uh, were sick and I think they kept working. And, and now there are hundreds of 500 or something young people working in a meat plant are, are all um, out sick with COVID. And hopefully they'll all survive, but there's no meat being processed. The meat, the meat industry in those factories has stopped. So, so those, and that's a food industry, that's an important national industry that we should, we all need to keep our food going. So, so I think a lot of essential industries will have to take on more people uh, to, to manage through this. And I suppose there is this belief that we are on a trajectory out of this, but the WHO's Mike Ryan has said that COVID-19 might join the mix of viruses that, that kill people around the world every year. What does that mean for cocooners or vulnerable people, even if we get this strictly under control? Yeah, so I, I completely agree with him. I hope that happens in a restricted part of the world. There are many countries, 
particularly in Africa, South America and Asia, that will really struggle to control it. But I would point you, my heroine all this is Jacinda Ardern. She's the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And there they've been very radical in their measures of, of controlling it and restrictions. And now it seems to have ceased to spread in New Zealand. Australia's on the same trajectory. So it looks as if with the political policy and leadership in Australia, New Zealand, also hopefully South Korea and parts of China, that it will actually cease to be spreading and cease to be present in, in those parts of the world. And they can get business back up and running as normal. So I think the world will divide in five years' time into two different worlds. Several countries, like specifically New Zealand and China, that will be COVID-19 free. And then several other countries that have worked include a lot of the populous countries in, in Africa and Asia and South America, that where COVID-19 will be circulating widely, as Mike Ryan said. And it will be very difficult and challenging to travel from one to the other, particularly from the COVID-19 circulating one to the COVID-19 free one. You'll actually have to do two weeks in quarantine or else maybe one week and then a, a sensitive swab test that will detect it if it's present in your nose. So I, I do see a very new world in, in three or five years' time. And I, I don't think this can be eliminated from the eight billion people in the world, but there will be cocoons and pockets that can be kept COVID-19 free. And I hope that cocoon includes the whole island of Ireland. I, I would like to see it. Maybe maybe we can encourage the folk, the good folk over in Great Britain to join us in England, Scotland, Wales and join us and become part of a, a COVID-19 free future. That's all for today and for this week. Thanks to Professor Sam McConkie and to producer Declan Conlon. And thanks for listening. We'll be back on Monday.